Yeah, please bow with me in prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, we are just in awe of your grace. We cannot thank you enough for your grace uh, and that you don't just uh, drip it into our life, uh, but that that it's an ocean full of grace and wave after wave after wave that that crashes upon us. Uh, And we we thank you for this, uh, that by your grace, uh, you chose us in eternity past to become your sons and daughters. Uh, that by your grace uh, you sent your prophets, uh, you sent the ministers of your word to go forth and proclaim uh, the truthfulness of your word to a lost and dying people. We thank you for your grace, ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was full of grace and truth, uh, and who lived a sinless life of obedience to you, never once grumbled, never once complained, never once disobeyed you. Uh, but, but was always obedient and faithful to the mission that you gave him. And we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ uh, on the cross for our sins, uh, for him bearing up your wrath. You were justly and rightly angry towards us, furious towards us for our, our sin and our disobedience against you, our willful disobedience. But you and your grace sent your son to bear that penalty for us so that by faith in Christ uh, we might know you, be forgiven of our sin, uh, and, and live for you and, and worship you 24-7. Lord, again, we praise you for this grace. We thank you for how it energizes us and sustains us moment by moment and day by day. It's all of grace, all of grace. Lord, I just ask as we've uh, gathered here to worship uh, that your grace would energize us to listen well, that your grace would also energize us to fellowship in the love of Christ, to, to be speaking the truth and love to one another, and that our words to each other would be gracious, seasoned with salt, meeting uh, every need uh, that's, that's around us, uh, that you would give us eyes to see those around us, that we wouldn't, uh, as we just heard, have that box around us, but that we would, that we would not be people who are... Uh, come here, but we are people who who go to others and love others because that's what you did for us. That's what you modeled for us. Help us to be mindful of one another, just to be loving one another, encouraging one another, praying with one another, uh, looking out for the needs of one another. Help us to be dying to self uh, and living for your glory and, and the good of those who are around us. And Lord, as we, as a church, plan this this. This afternoon for loving our community, we thank you for each one of these leaders who's coming out. Uh, We pray that you would uh, give them guidance and direction as they speak. And Lord, we ask you to give us as a church listening ears, humble hearts to hear what's being said. Also give us wisdom and direction to to hear what all they say, the information that we'll learn, Lord. We don't want to just hear that and do nothing with it, but we want to make wise, strategic, God-honoring decisions in light of it. So we pray you guide and direct us in that way. Lord, you you know our heart's desire, our burning passion is to saturate all of Allegan and Berry County with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. We don't want to do that in our own strength, Lord. We, We can only do that as you guide and as you move, Lord. We don't want to take one step ahead of you, or we don't want to be in any way lagging behind you. We want to be walking with you as you lead us, and that we would be willing to follow you wherever that might be, however much that might seem scary to us, or impossible to us, or daunting to us, or maybe we're anxious or nervous about it, Lord, whatever it is, we thank you that you are with us. Um, that you have all authority, all authority has been given to you, and you have called upon us to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching, and you promise to be with us as we do so, Lord. May that truth uh, just compel us as a church body to do exactly what you've called us to do. 
Uh, but Lord, again, help us as we, as we follow you on the mission not to forget one another. So help us as a church to be a, a place of belonging, a place where you can weep, a place where you can rejoice, a place where you can uh, share your struggles, a place where if you have doubts, if you have questions, you can openly share those and, and find uh, the truth in love through the scriptures, Lord. We pray that you would do this for your namesake in, in this church body. And we thank you for this, this SING conference that, that's coming up. And we thank you again for the privilege of worship. We, we know that apart from your grace, we were worshiping ourselves. It was all about us. We were building our kingdom. We were on a mission for self. But you, by your grace, crashed into our lives and you showed us uh, that we were meant to live for you. We're meant to worship you in spirit and in truth. And that's not just something that happens for a couple hours on a Sunday morning, but it happens 24-7, all day, every day. We are to be worshipers of you. And I pray that you'll be pleased to use this, this SING conference here in our church and all around the world as Christians gather uh, to, to worship your name in every, every, every language, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, Lord. What, what a, a great week that will be. Please, please bless that as we partake in that. And Lord, we do think of uh, the Boer family, in particular for, for Tom and the loss of his wife. Uh, Lord, we pray for your peace that passes understanding in his heart and in his life. Uh, we pray for the gospel uh, to be rich and sweet to them. Uh, and, and we pray for the funeral coming up on Tuesday uh, to be uh, full of your grace and truth and love, that your word would go forth in power. And Lord, that, that through this people would see the hope that we have in Christ um, would place their faith in you. And we would ask the same for that this morning as we've gathered, Lord. We pray that your spirit would do its work of drawing, that your spirit would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if there be anyone here this morning who's lost and without Christ, they're, they're still lost in their sins. What, what an awful word that is, to be lost. But Lord, you have come to seek and to save the lost. And Lord, we pray that this morning, through the preaching of your word, you would seek them and you would save them and you would draw them to you. And Lord, if there be any here this morning who are struggling with disappointment or who are uh, wondering if you're still listening or wondering if you still care, uh, wondering if, if you're paying attention at all, that this morning, through the preaching of the word, that, that we would hear and believe and not doubt, but instead praise you that you are on the move. And that you love us and you care for us and you are, you are on a mission to fulfill your word for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. Help us to trust you and to believe you and praise you because of this, this truth. And Lord, we're mindful that we are not uh, the only church that has the gospel, uh, that we don't, we don't uh, own the, the corner on this, Lord. We thank you that you are the God of the nations and that you are on the move here locally, but also all around the world. And we just pray, we plead for the, that you would build your kingdom uh, locally and globally, that you would do a mighty work for your namesake in this way. And we thank you for all of our sister churches who uh, preach the gospel faithfully and, and uh, believe in your word and its sufficiency and its inerrancy and, and its, its truthfulness, Lord. You would richly bless those churches, that you would richly honor your word as you promised to do. We thank you that it never returns void. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We started making our way through that uh, a couple weeks ago. And this morning we have made our way to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. 
And God's word says this to us this morning. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which would be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people." And this is the reading of God's good and holy word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. I open with this question. Do you ever find it difficult to trust the Lord every moment of every day? Do you find that hard to do? To trust the Lord every moment of every day? Do you ever say or think things to yourself like this? It would be so much easier to trust God if I was in control, right? It would be so much easier to trust Him then. Or, Or something like, how can I trust God when He doesn't act the way that I think He should act? Right? How, how can I trust Him? Do, do you ever find it difficult to trust the Lord? And my theme this morning is very simple, and I hope 
encouraging uh, to each one of us as it encouraged me this week as I studied through this and, and thought about this. And the theme this morning is simply this, that God is on the move. And He is on the move for the good of His people. And He is on the move in fulfillment of His Word. Therefore, you and I, we can trust Him. And we can also praise Him as He is on the move. He's on the move through the good and the bad. Sometimes He's on the move quickly, sometimes slowly, sometimes mysteriously, sometimes plainly, sometimes quite miraculously, other times in just the everyday stuff of life. But in all of it and through all of it, God is on the move for the good of His people. And in fulfillment of His Word, you can trust Him and you can praise Him. God is in charge of history. From eternity past, God has been at work fulfilling His great plan. And some of us, I think, need that encouragement this morning. Maybe, maybe you thought God is, is, has been asleep, or He's forgotten about you, or He's not fulfilling His purposes. He's, he seems silent. Maybe, maybe you've been praying about something for years, and it seems like God's just kind of pushed the mute button. He's not listening to you. Maybe, perhaps, you feel disappointed by God or disappointed in some difficult life situation is, is not what you imagined it to be. And again, I want you to be reassured this morning uh, that God is on the move. That even though you might have a hard time believing it, He loves you, He is with you, He is for you, He is on the move to fulfill His Word. He does all things in the best possible way at the best possible time. He's never late. He's never early. He keeps perfect time. And sometimes, again, His ways are mysterious. Sometimes we have a hard time believing it. But ever and always, He is on the move. So the first point this morning is exactly that. God is on the move in mysterious ways. And I believe we see this from verses 5 through 7. God is on the move in mysterious ways in verses 5 through 7. Sometimes... When we read the Bible, we kind of get this impression that miracle after miracle after miracle is happening. And that God is sending prophet after prophet after prophet. And, and there's like this never-ending sequence between them. But such is not the case. It would do well for us to remember this morning that uh, at the time of, of, of what Luke records, uh, that at this point in Israel's history, they have not heard from God in over 400 years. 400 years of silence. That's a long time. 400 years of no profit from God. Historically, God has spoken over the years through Moses, through David, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and a whole host of other prophets, right up to Malachi, and then nothing for 400 years. That's a long time. I was trying to think about that in my own mind. I was trying to put it in perspective. And I just got thinking about this. When did America become a nation? Roughly 250 years ago, right? 1776. Right now, some of you are trying to remember that, right? When did we become a nation? <laughs> Roughly 250 years ago. And I got thinking about my own life, and, and maybe as you think about yours, how, how much do you remember about our founding fathers and the things that they said and did and wrote? 
I'm willing to bet <laughs> not as much as, as we may think we do. How much do you remember of all that? How much do you think uh, the Israelites remembered the promises of God with 400 years of silence? I think at this point, Israel is very secular. Yes, many of them are going through the motions. They're, 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 they're following the traditions, and we're going to find that a lot through the, the Gospel of Luke, but they have become very, very secular. Added to this, uh, not only has God been silent for 400 years, but added to this, Israel is in captivity. Yes? They are not independent. They are under the power and authority of Rome. And so our verse is open in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And that phrase should jar you, right? King of Judea? That's God. But here, Herod, uh, under the power of Rome, has become like this puppet king, and he is king of Judea. And, and uh, we know that Herod reigned in Israel under Roman rule from roughly 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He's kind of known as a megalomaniac. Uh, he, he built all these impressive architectural monuments to himself. <laughs> uh, he was also a very cruel person. Hendrickson, uh, one Bible commentator, Hendrickson calls Herod a diabolical monster who was capable of, of craft and cruel, cruelty. He, we know that he murdered members of his own family, including his own son, uh, just days before he lost the throne. And of course, we know from Scripture, he's the one responsible for slaughtering the infants at the announcement of the birth of Christ. He's a wicked man. So just take a moment and put those two thoughts together. You haven't heard from God in 400 years. And Israel, God's chosen nation, is under the rule of a wicked tyrant, an oppressive ruler and leader. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? That's a very hard place to be. I can easily hear uh, the Israelites saying things like, where is God? All, all these things in Scripture speak about His coming and His judgment and His kingdom. I don't see any difference. Where is God? In fact, we, we've been taken over by the Romans. Who is this God? Why won't He act? What is He doing? Doesn't He care? That's, that's kind of the setting. And then we come to those, those sweet words in verse, verse 5 and we're reminded that all is not hopeless. While, while spiritually Israel is struggling and, and they're under this oppressive political uh, leadership, God has a remnant. God has a people who He has kept to Himself and through whom He will fulfill His promises and through whom He is on the move. In our text, we see a people who are a sharp contrast uh, to Herod and the spiritual decay. So Luke writes in verse 5, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. There, there couldn't be a sharper contrast. Uh, Herod is all about himself. He's walking blamelessly in his, in his own ways. <laughs> uh, and the nation of Israel has forgotten about God. Uh, but Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are faithful. God always has his devoted and obedient people. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. 
he remembers. And the name Elizabeth means, my God is an oath, or you can translate that, the absolutely reliable one. And so, though much of Israel has forgotten God's promises, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they remember them, and they walk blamelessly before their absolutely reliable God. And they did this in the face of immense disappointment, painful disappointment. Because if you observe verse 7, words that sting, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. In Jewish culture, barrenness was just about the worst thing that could happen to a married woman. Uh, in fact, to kind of get an idea of it, you can just look at verse 25. Uh, we read it, but you can see in verse 25, Elizabeth says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my what? My reproach. My disgrace. So how does Elizabeth feel? She's walking blamelessly. She's faithful before the Lord, but she's walking and feeling this great sense of what? Reproach and disgrace. If you remember in, in Genesis, the, the account of Rachel and Leah, and you have uh, uh, Leah who is popping out baby after baby after baby after baby. Remember that? And Rachel, she's not happy about that. Right? Remember what Rachel says in, in Genesis 31, 1, she says to her husband, she says, give me children or I'll die. That's the thought that's even here in verse 7. I'm just trying to help you see that barrenness in the Jewish culture was just about the worst thing imaginable to happen to a married woman in that day. And, and uh, Rachel's husband Jacob, with anger, I think, responds, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? How's that for a sensitive husband? I mean, what Rachel said wasn't exactly the fairest statement in the world, but Jacob doesn't respond very lovingly either. Well, I'm not in the place of God. I can't do that. But as insensitive as it may have been, it was a true statement. God is the one who opens and closes the womb. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Then a couple of verses later, the scriptures say in Psalm 127, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. God opens the womb and God closes the womb. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth have been married for many years. They have hoped and prayed much for a wonderful gift from God, a child to call their own, but the child never came. Months and years went by, but there was no conception. The struggle is real. The disappointment was painful. The disgrace is barely manageable. I hope you're feeling that and getting a sense of the weight of verse 7 when it says, but they had no child. I hope you're feeling the pain. And I would just ask you this morning, have you ever been disappointed? Maybe your struggle is not barrenness. Maybe your struggle is not in desiring children and, and for whatever reason the Lord is closing the womb. There can be a myriad of things that bring disappointment in our life, such as the loss of a child, right? Or, or financial ruin. Or, or having a son or a daughter who you raise in the things of the Lord only when they leave the house to see them walk away from it all. That's disappointing. That hurts. That's painful. Or you're going through a difficult marriage. Or, or maybe your church disappoints you. 
Have you been burned by a church? Maybe your pastor has disappointed you. Or your best friend has, has turned his or her back on you. Maybe because of all of this, you are depressed and you're discouraged and you're lonely. Maybe internally or maybe even openly, you've, you've started questioning God. Why, God? Why? Maybe you've thought, God, you know, I, I love you. I seek to love you and I seek to love others and I seek to serve you. I, I think I'm walking worthy of you. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. Why is this happening, God? I don't understand. That's a painful place to be. It's a hard place to be. And maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe that's someone that you know this morning. And you need to know that God never guarantees that life will be without pain and disappointment. Uh, God never says, if you follow me, it's just, it's just going to be a bed of roses. Uh, God never promises that. Uh, God actually tells us life will be full of disappointments, uh, but he will never disappoint you. And the central issue with disappointments is not, will I be disappointed? But the central issue is this, what will you do when the disappointments come? That's the central issue. What will you do? What will your reaction be? What will go through your mind? What happens in your heart when disappointments come? And look at Elizabeth and Zechariah's great examples to us. Despite God's 400 years of silence, despite these trying and uncertain times under a, under a wicked ruler named Herod, despite Israel's largely spiritual fruitlessness, despite feeling disgraced, despite their great disappointment, Elizabeth and Zechariah walk blamelessly before the Lord. They faithfully follow the Lord. They remember His promises. They trust the absolutely reliable one. They do not give in to bitterness or anger or frustration. Instead, they trust and depend upon God in the midst of disappointment. And what they're going to learn to see is that disappointment is His appointment. In fact, there's a powerful poem that says that so well that I'm going to read a few lines from it. It says, disappointment, his appointment. Change one letter, then I see. Do you ever think about that? Take in your mind, or if you have to, write down the word disappointment. Or in your mind, if you can see it. If you change that very first letter from a D to an H, what does it say? His appointment. You see it? Disappointment, it's his appointment. Change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. Disappointment, his appointment. Whose? The Lord who loves best, understands and knows me fully, who my faith and love would test. Disappointment, his appointment. No good thing will he withhold. From denials oft we gather treasures from his love untold. Disappointment, his appointment. Lord, I take it then as such, like the clay and hands of potter, yielding wholly to thy touch. And listen how it ends. All my life's plan is thy molding. Not one single choice be mine. Let me answer unrepining. Father, not my will, but thine. Disappointment. It's his appointment. 
God knew the shame of Elizabeth. He knew she was barren. He knew the state of Israel, that the nation of Israel was spiritually barren. And God had a plan. God is on the move. Despite appearances, he has not abandoned Israel. He has not abandoned his people. He has not abandoned Elizabeth or Zechariah. He is working on a plan to take away their shame and, and to fulfill his plans for salvation. Their disappointment was his appointment for their own joy and the joy of the world because they are going to have a son who will point the way to the Savior of the world. Yes, God moves in mysterious ways. And even when he's silent, even in the darkest and deepest pain, and, and you feel like you're left in that darkness, God is active. Yes, we plan, we hope, and we dream. But God Almighty is the sovereign story writer. And he is writing your story. And there might be disappointment in it, but see it as his appointment. See it as his plan to take you on a different course for your good, for his glory. So when disappointment comes, you have to wrestle with that. Are you going to get angry or trust God in the midst of it, like Zechariah and Elizabeth who walked blamelessly before him? God is on the move. Because he's on the move, we can trust him. And as we make our way through the text, we see that Luke uh, was a priest and it came to pass that his division was on duty. If you remember back in King's David, back in King David's day, he had divided the priests into 24 divisions. And we see from our text that Zechariah is part of the division of Abijah, which was the eighth priestly division. As such, these priests uh, would spend two weeks uh, out of the year uh, to do special duties in the temple. There were approximately 18,000 priests, uh, so for the priests to be assigned their duties, they would do that by lot, right? That's what it says in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, a court, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That word lot, we're not exactly sure uh, what the lots looked like. They might have resembled dice, if you can picture dice. Uh, but what, what the lots were was they would throw them on the ground or wherever they would throw them, and they would use that to determine God's will. They would use that to determine a yes or no answer. They would also use that to, to pick one person over another. And so what's happened here is the lot has been cast and it falls on Zechariah to be the one who will go into the holy place and offer up incense of prayer. Now, as you hear that, you need to connect a verse in your mind, and that's Proverbs 16.33, which says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from who? The Lord. And so, the casting of lots was a method used to reveal God's purposes, God's direction. So the lot was cast, it came to pass by God's decision that Zechariah would be the one that day to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And again, you got to get, that's, this is a big deal. This is like the highlight of his life. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Very, very few priests had the opportunity to do this. So this, this is a big deal for, for him. After many years of, of serving faithfully, Zechariah has this awesome privilege of entering the holy place just in front of the Holy of Holies where there's the altar of incense. And he, he puts the incense on the hot coals, which would then create the smoke and the aroma that would go up, symbolizing prayer. And tradition has it that as priests would do that, they would put the aroma on the hot coals, the incense on the hot coals, and as that burned, they would fall to the floor 
prostrate, prostrate in humble prayer to God. And as he does that, something very unexpectedly happens. <laughs> uh, we read in verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side, the position of favor, the right side of the altar of incense. How does Zechariah respond? Verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Zechariah is terrified. He's terrified. Listen, angels are not cute and cuddly. Angels are not these baby cherubs that fly around, these chubby babies, right? That ridiculous picture that is out there. Angels are terrifying. If they were to, and they're all around us right now, and if they were to suddenly show themselves, we would fall down in fear and be tempted to worship. Because that's what happens almost every time an angel shows up, and the angel has to say, whoa, 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 do not worship me. Right? Because they are awesome and they are fearful. And so Zechariah, he gets it, he sees the angel, and he trembles. He trembles, and the angel gives him the gospel. Don't be afraid. Which is to say, take faith. Take faith. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, now we don't know exactly what uh, Zechariah was praying here while he's in the temple. Maybe he was praying at that time for a child. Maybe he's praying for the promised Messiah and the redemption of Israel. Maybe he's praying for both. But, but the cool thing that's happening here is whatever he's praying for, we know that all through his life he was praying for a child. And let's say now at the temple he's praying for that promised Messiah. Here we're going to see those two prayers converge. Because they've been praying for a son and God hasn't been giving that to them. And they've been praying for the Messiah and God hasn't been given that. And now he's in the temple praying and they converge into one. And he says, your prayer has been heard. You're gonna ha- your, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And he will be the Messiah or he will prepare the way for the Messiah. And let's just walk through uh, the way how John is described here. Uh, First, just that part in verse 13, you shall call his name John. John means God is gracious. And isn't that exactly what's happening here? Israel is spiritually barren. Elizabeth is physically barren. And God in his grace has come at that time. We see in verse 14 uh, that they say, the angel says to Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness. Up to this point, they've had reproach and shame and, and disappointment. In verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And just side note, remember I told you two weeks ago, a major theme in Luke is praise and rejoicing. It's the gospel of singing. There it is, right? There's, there's joy and gladness. Verse 15, we are told that John will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. And connect that in your mind with Matthew eleven eleven, where Jesus says about John the Baptist, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says that. And that begs the question, what made him great? And of course, 
part of what's going to be in the next few verses is going to explain that to us. But as, as I thought about it this week, I, I just came to the conclusion that what makes John great is humility. Because Isaiah 61, verse 1 and following says, Thus says the Lord, heaven, get, get this picture of God in your mind, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. <laughs> Uh, what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? And, and if you kind of look around at all creation, think about the universe. He says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. In other words, I don't need anything, is what God's saying. But then listen to what he says, Isaiah 61. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's quite the verse. What does God pay attention to? The humble. Can anyone be great in God's eyes if they're not humble? They can't. And we know that John the Baptist was humble. He had every reason not to be. I mean, he's being told he'll be great and he does all these, these great things for the Lord, but he's very humble because he says in John 3.30, Jesus must increase, but I must what? Decrease. And I'm not worthy to untie your sandal, right? He's humble. So John is great because he's humble, but I think there's another piece of the puzzle also. I think he is great because his life is entwined with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John understood his calling, his purpose, his life, and he carried it out. His point was, his, the point of his life was to point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why was John great? Because he decreased and he pointed to Christ that he might increase in the eyes of others. He, he was great because his life was entwined with Christ. That's what made his life great. So Christian, hear this. This is immensely encouraging if you'll hear it. Again, Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the verse keeps going. You remember that? Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is what? Greater than John the Baptist. Are you hearing what that's saying? Up to John the Baptist, no one greater. After Christ and his bringing in the kingdom, everyone who trusts and believes in Christ is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? How, how, how is that possible? Uh, but, but, but what his teaching is about us who believe is that you are great in the sight of the Lord because you know Jesus. You know him post-resurrection. You are part of the kingdom that all these things were moving towards. You had the fullness of the Spirit. And you, Christian, are the great of this earth. You ever think about that? Maybe you say, I don't feel that great. <laughs> but you are. You are the great of this earth. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he has ushered you into his kingdom. That's, that's the idea that's here. So the essence of greatness is that your life is lived for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your Greatness is completely tied up in your being tied up in Jesus. Are you seeing it? That, that's the idea that's here. You don't have to minister to, like, to be like John the Baptist. Just make sure that everything you do, the reason for everything that you do, is to point to Jesus. That's greatness. That's greatness. We also see in verse 15... 
uh, that John the Baptist will be wholly and solely committed to the purposes of God. For it goes on to say, and he, that's John the Baptist, must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Uh, so instead of being under the influence of alcohol, he will be under the influence of the spirits. He will live a life, surrender to God's will, dependent on God's power in all things. He will pursue a pure and holy life. His ministry will also be in the spirit and power of Elijah. Look at verse 17. It says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I just got to stop and try and have a little sanctified imagination. It already had to be blowing Zechariah's mind to hear that his son will be filled with the Spirit even in the womb. Because if you remember historically in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only filled people when he was coming upon them to do a mighty work through them. Right? It's a little bit different than today because now we're partakers of the new covenant and the Spirit dwells within us 24-7, right? But before the new covenant, they were under the old covenant and the Spirit didn't come the way that He came, comes now. He, he would kind of come and go, right? And so to hear already that the Spirit is going to be coming upon John the Baptist, his eyes must have got big because he knows that means, wow, God really is going to do great things through John. But then... <laughs> If his eyes are big, they just got way bigger. When, when you hear this, this verse about he will go in the spirit and power of Elijah, that's huge. Why is that huge? Because if you flip back to Malachi, which is the very last word that anyone ever heard from God, the very last words, in fact, I'm just going to flip there real quick, back in Malachi chapter 4, the very last words of the Old Testament are these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi 4.6 He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So catch this. The very last promise that's found in the Old Testament, God's last word under the Old Covenant, is met with or kissed by the very first promise of the New Testament. He's here. He's, the, he's your son. He's the one who's going to fulfill that promise. That's huge. God's been silent for 400 years, and he's been at work, and he's going to pick it right up where he left off. That's exciting to see. And Zechariah's eyes, like I said, had, had to get big. Now, what does it mean when it says he will go in the spirit and power of Elijah? I think that means he'll be bold. Because we know John the Baptist did not perform any miracles, at least there's none recorded in the scriptures, but like Elijah, John the Baptist was bold and uncompromising in his stand for God's word. That's why he gets beheaded, yes? <laughs> he was bold. He was uncompromising in God's word. And central to his bold proclamation is the message of repentance. Notice verse 17 again. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts. That's the language of repentance. He will boldly preach, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In fact, turn to Luke chapter 3 and you get a, a flavor for his bold preaching of repentance. In Luke chapter 3, picking it up in verse 7, he says this, he said, therefore, to the crowds, remember he's out baptizing and a great group of crowds come around him. He turns to those crowds and he's, who, who are out to be baptized by him and look what he says, you brood of vipers. What would you say to me <laughs> this morning if you came in and I stood up here and I looked at you and I said, you stinking brood of vipers. You know, <laughs> what, what a thing to, to turn around. And they came out to be baptized by him. And he, he calls them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Here's, the, here's repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, which is the fruit of repentance, right? If you believe in him, you repent, you bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the crowd say to him, then, what shall we do? And, and he answers them, uh, here's repentance. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, repentance, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? His message is repentance. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. He's bold. He's uncompromising. And we need a lot more Johns today. A lot more Johns today. Now why does the angel share all of this with Zechariah? I would suggest to you that he shares all of this with Zechariah to help us see, to help him see that God is on the move. And he's going to, he's made a promise. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, he's made that promise. Now he's going to fulfill it. He's on the move. He's keeping his word. He's answered your prayer. The 400 silent years have come to an end. He's saying, I'm renewing my work among the people. You will have a son who will fulfill an ancient prophecy. Now how does Zechariah respond to the fact that his prayer has been answered and that God has spoken for the first time in, in 400 years? You, you would think that he stands up and dances for joy. But what does he do? He doubts, right? His, his response is, it's all too human. Because in verse 18 he says, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You know, he's saying, you know, we're not spring chickens, right? That, that day, it's, 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 it's come and gone. Uh, we couldn't have children when we're young. We can't have children now. Right? That, that, that's kind of what he's saying. So how, how can I know this? It would be almost comical if it wasn't so sad. Instead of faith, he has doubts. Like we talked about last week, he's wavering. He's uncertain. It kind of reminded me of the account when later on, after Christ dies and is buried and resurrected and ascends into heaven, and he sends a spirit and the church starts. It reminds me of Herod, uh, who kills James and then puts Peter in prison and has the plan to kill Peter very shortly. Uh, but that night, while Peter is in prison, he has a vision. And while he has that vision, the vision that he has is that suddenly the shackles around him let go 
and he's able to get up and he walks out of the prison and he comes to this rusty old iron gate that opens up and he walks out that gate and suddenly he wakes up and lo and behold, it wasn't a vision, it was actually happening. And remember what he does? Remember what's happening while he's in prison? The church body has gathered to pray. They've gathered to pray for Peter to be released from prison. And it's cool that Peter knows that they're doing that. In some way, he knows the church is praying, and so he makes his way to that house. Remember what happens? The servant girl, Rhoda, is there. She comes to answer, and she recognizes his voice, and she's so excited that she doesn't let Peter in. And she runs and tells the the church that's praying that Peter's at the gate. And how do they respond? You're out of your mind. That's what they say to him. Think about that. They've been praying for his release. Here he is standing at the door, and they hear the good news, and the response is, you're, you're out of your mind. She insists, no, 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 he's there. And they say to her, no, it's his angel. That's quite the scene. They're, they're praying for his release. They chide the girl who say, your prayers have been answered. There's doubt in the face of fulfillment. So was Zechariah. He has doubt in the face of fulfillment. He's been praying and he's caught off guard that God would answer his prayer. And so the angel replies in verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And I got to say, if Zechariah was frightened when Gabriel first appeared, he's even more terrified right now. When he says that, when the angel Gabriel says that, I think that had to totally unnerve him. We've only encountered Gabriel one other time in the scriptures. That's back in Daniel. And that's when he reveals to Daniel the 77s. And part of the crucial part of the 77s is the Messiah. And so Gabriel, the last time he showed up, and he's been doing a lot of other stuff, but the last time he showed up, he's talking about the promise of God that's going to be fulfilled, the 77th through the Messiah, and now he comes again with the same good news. Here comes your son who's going to point the way and prepare the way for this Messiah. And Zechariah hears that. He's a faithful man. He knows the word of God. That had to stun him, unnerve him. I am Gabriel. Whether you believe it or not, God is coming in all of his might to fulfill his promises. And I know he doesn't quite say it this way, but the way I kind of read verse 19 is, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Right? Because he says in verse verse 18, how shall I know this? He's asking for a sign, right? Show, Show me something so I can believe this. And Gabriel's like, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You want a sign? Here it is. Right? Verse Verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, catch it, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Christians, I just ask again, perhaps this morning, you need this encouragement that God is on the move. That God is on the move. God will do what he says he will do, even if you don't remember him saying he will do it. God is on the move, and he will do what he says he will do, even if you don't believe him. That's awesome. He will do what he says he will do, even if you don't believe him. (laughs) That's faithfulness. God is on the move. Trust him. Trust him. 
He will do what he says. All that God has for us will take place precisely as he says. God arranges everything in his own way. Trust his wisdom. Trust his ways. Don't, don't doubt his schedule. Don't, don't, don't think that he operates on your calendar. He fulfills his promises when he sovereignly chooses to act. Trust him. Take him at his word. He has said that Jesus died and rose again. So believe in his death and resurrection. He has said that he will forgive anyone who comes to him trusting in Jesus. So if you're a sinner and you know your sin, but you believe in Jesus, you can know that your sins are forgiven. When you have those times when your sins haunt you, remember that in Christ, God has promised to forgive God has said that he will never leave you or forsake you. So whatever troubles you're facing, whatever disappointment or pain or hardship is in your life, remember that God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. God promises that the suffering and hardship and disappointment in your life will be eclipsed by his glory. When you find yourself filled with fear and anxiety, trust God who says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When you're being assaulted with temptation, and, and it's everything you got not to give in to that temptation, remember that God has said this to you, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When you fall into great sin, fall upon the promise of our great Savior who says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you need wisdom, God has said, he has promised, if you ask him for wisdom, he will give you wisdom. Remember, Christ in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And God has also said that he is coming again. He is coming again to judge the world. And if that is what God has said, then that is what he is going to do. And we must be ready, we must be prepared by turning from our sin and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God is on the move. Trust him. He's also on the move so we can praise him. Look at verses 23 and 25. It says, When his time, that Zechariah, his time of service was ended, the week is up, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. God's keeping his word, right? And for five months, she kept herself hidden. I don't know exactly why she did that, but she did. But notice what she says. Thus, says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. I've got to tell you, this week, as I studied verse 25 and really thought on that and dwelt on that, it put a big smile on my heart. That is an amazing verse. Because she was disappointed. She was in the pain and the grief uh, of feeling abandoned and forgotten. And now she's singing. She's praising God. Look, look at that verse. Notice the emphasis on her Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach 
among people. She's learned the lesson. Disappointment was his appointment. She's no longer disgraced. Now she's swept away by God's grace. The blessing is sweet once it came. God moves in mysterious ways for our good. Hear this, Christian. You're not a pawn or chess piece on God's chessboard that he's kind of just coldly and coolly and passively moving around for, for his purposes, irregardless of what you think. No, he acts for you. Right? There's a way you can look at this passage and say, no, he's acting for the nation of Israel. And he is. But he doesn't act for the people of Israel in such a way that he forgets about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He did this for her. Right? She's not wrong in what she says. The Lord has done this for me. He acts for you. He's on the move for you. And then notice what she says. He looked on me. He looked on me. God has noticed me. I thought he had forgotten about me. I've been so disappointed. I've felt so disgraced. I've borne so much reproach. I felt forgotten. And maybe, maybe you felt that same way. Maybe, maybe finances are a disaster or, or, or cancer or you've lost a loved one or, or you, and you just feel like God has completely left you and abandoned you. But what do we read? He has done this for me. He's looked on me. And he's done this for me and he's looked on me. Why? The gospel. To take away my reproach. All of us in this room have reasons to be disgraced. We have reasons for shame. It doesn't take me long to think about my past and some of the incredibly stupid, embarrassing, reproachful things that I have done. Satan's pretty good at that sometimes too, right? You're driving down the road or it's late at night or you can be anywhere and suddenly, bam. And you're like... How God ever use me? The reproach. In fact, you don't even have to think that far back. I'm, I'm willing to bet there's something in this past week, if we're being honest, that you thought, said, did, that was reproach, shameful, embarrassing, not honoring to Christ. We all have that. Stuff where we'd be very ashamed and disgraced if everyone here knew about it. But we are told that Jesus removes all of our shame. Amen? Jesus removes all of our shame. He removes our disgrace. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus took our shame upon himself on the cross. He bore it willingly out of his love. There is no shame in the gospel. Romans 8.1 There is now therefore no what? Condemnation for those who believe, for those who are justified by faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have peace from our self-condemnation that accuses us daily. And more importantly, we have peace with God. We can rest in what God has done through Christ to remove our shame and to present us before Himself in clean white robes clothed with his righteousness, washed in the blood of the Lamb. In the sight of God, we can say with verse 25, if you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, we should all be able to sing the praise of God. Our soul should come alive with verse 25, and we should all be able to say in our own context, thus the Lord has done for me. The Lord has done this for me. In the days of my reproach, He has acted for me. He looked on me and He has saved me. He has cleansed me. He has redeemed me. He has declared me righteous. That's my God. That's my Savior. I boast in Him. He's my delight. God is on the move. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him.
We're going to kind of wrap it up with a, a hymn. It's hymn number 88. I'm going to read the words. It's, it's a hymn that I, I think, sadly, we're not terribly familiar with. It's by William Cooper. I referenced it last week. It's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but you pronounce it Cooper, William Cooper. The name of the song is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Sound, sound familiar? Uh, hopefully that's, well, that's the first point you made, Pastor Andrew. God, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I'm, I'm going to read some of the stanzas because I want us to think deeply about what it says. Uh, stanza one, it says, God moves in a mysterious way. He, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. The storms of life. Where is God when bad things happen? He's riding that storm. He's in charge of that storm. That, that's what that was saying. Deep in unfathomable minds. That's a hard word to say. Unfathomable. It's unfathomable how hard that word is to say. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. I love stanza three. Ye fearful saints, right? You see the storm coming. You're, you're afraid. You're anxious. You're worried. Maybe you're discouraged. You're depressed. So verse stanza three. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Disappointment? His appointment. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. I love this line right here. The bud may have a bitter taste. Right? Sometimes it's bitter, it's hard, it's painful, the things we go through. The bud will have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Behind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. In other words, people who don't believe, they look at all that's happening. Like, like all this stuff's happening in our world right now, and they're like, there's no God. God's got, this is foolish to believe in him, right? Un unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But watch what he says. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. He will make it plain. God is on the move. He moves in mysterious ways. He's on the move. You can trust him. He's on the move. We can praise him. So let's do that now. Let's, let's praise him.